Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. Let's fix our hope on the Lord Jesus in prayer together. God eternal, as we bow before you now and as we open your holy, inerrant word, show us now that all things are shadows, but you are substance. Assure us now that though all things are shifting, you alone are our anchor. And teach us now that though in all things there is ignorance, you alone are perfect wisdom. Convict us now, not about the circumstances around us, but about the character of Christ that's being formed in us by the power of your spirit. Bless the preaching of your word to the lives and hearts of everyone who is gathered here in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Trouble, trouble comes into every life, into every life, a little or a lot of trouble must fall. You can imagine that as a pastor, I've prayed for people who are encountering troubles and I've counseled people who are encountering troubles. And you can also imagine that being the pastor uh, or one of the pastors of a congregation of this size, I've been able to observe all sorts of persons in all sorts of troubles. And these observations have helped me over the years. One of the things that I've noticed is this. Some of you, some of you have many, many, many troubles. And those many, many troubles are actually of an extremely severe and difficult nature. And it's hard. And I've also observed over the years that some of you have relatively few troubles. And of those relatively few troubles, comparatively speaking, they're not as severe as other people's troubles. But one of the things that endlessly is mysterious to me is that I walk with some of you who have very, very many, very severe troubles and they don't paralyze and debilitate you. You continue to rise in faith and in hope through them. And I walk with others who have relatively few and relatively not as serious troubles. And for some reason or another, those relatively few and relatively unserious troubles debilitate and paralyze. Why is that? I have wondered about the answer to that question for decades. And if the Lord gives me more decades, I will keep wondering about it for decades more. I have been unsuccessful so far in applying the answer to that question even to my own life, but I still wonder about it all the time. Why is that? I wonder if one of the reasons why that is, is so I don't mean for this to be a tongue twister, follow with me. Troubles trouble us because they are troubling. Troubles trouble us because they're difficult and troubles trouble us because they're trouble. But I think our troubles trouble us more because we have trouble encountering and understanding our troubles. 
And the trouble that we have encountering and understanding our troubles makes our troubles more severe and in some cases more debilitating. In other words, trouble comes and trouble is troubling. But what troubles us is our inability to untangle our thoughts about our troubles or our seeming insufficiency at untangling or ceasing our sinful and wrong and faithless responses to our troubles. And that in itself troubles us at least as much as our troubles do. We have trouble understanding our trouble, and we have trouble encountering our wrong reactions to our troubles and rearranging those reactions before they debilitate us. So I'm all for admitting that the trouble itself is trouble and a problem, but I'm just saying there's an additional trouble in our own response to the trouble. It may be the case that your troubling thoughts about your own responses to your troubles add to you doubting your salvation or God's goodness or God's power. And I want to talk about that today. I want to start in 1 Peter, verse 6. The context here is he's, verse 3, blessing God who has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to a living hope. And verse 4 says we have an inheritance that's imperishable and perfect. And verse 5 assures us that we're being kept and guarded by God's power for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, in all of this, verse 6 says, in all of this you rejoice. So the this in verse 6 points upward to the inheritance, the resurrection of Jesus, the living hope. In this you rejoice, though, and that points downward, though now for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I want to start with five little phrases from verse 6. And I want to give you one untroubling or helpful truth about untangling trouble from each of these five little phrases. And I don't think I put them in the notes, so hopefully you can track with me here. Five little phrases that, are, that each show up there in verse six. And these little phrases in themselves will help us to untangle our troubling responses to trouble. Phrase number one is that it says, though now for a little while, for a little while. And the truth about trouble from that phrase for a little while is this, trouble does not last. Trouble does not last. It's only for a little while, which means that it's not going to last forever. Not if you're a Christian, not if you're in Christ, not if you're born again to a living hope. If you're here and you're not in Christ, I can't give you a likewise assurance about troubles. But if you are in Christ, I can assure you that troubles won't last. Trouble does not last. They're on the clock. They're for a little while and then they're done. They're for a season. They're for a little while. But pretty soon the bell will ring and you'll stop having to take the body blows because the round will be over. We all know, don't we? Uh, and what by that I mean we all know notionally or religiously or like we kind of think it's true because someone told us it one time. We all know that this life is short and it's going to be over before we know it. But the problem is that's one of the things you know, so to speak, religiously and notionally, but you don't feel that reality when you are in a time of trouble. You don't. You don't think that it's not going to last forever. When I'm the one in the trial, 
My trial is the worst and the longest, and it's just, I don't know what's gonna happen. And if someone tells me that it's just gonna be for a little while, I am disposed to kick that person away from me. <laughs> it's like when you have a toothache. Well, I, I needed a root canal. You ever need a root canal? Oh, man. I, this toothache is killing me. And someone comes up alongside me and says, oh, it's only one tooth. And it's such a small part of your body. Look how tall you are and look how little that tooth is. Just ignore it and get past it. And it was my desire to take all of the teeth out of that person's mouth with my fist when they said that. Why? Because when we're in trouble, it doesn't seem like it lasts for a little while. It seems like it goes on forever. But that's the first truth. From that phrase, a little while, trouble does not last. Second truth. And this is from the phrase, if necessary. Though now for a little while, if necessary. Second truth about trouble is this. Trouble does have a purpose. Trouble does have a purpose. It's necessary. It's needful. It's purposeful. There's a reason for it. So the kids are at the table. The little kids are at the Thanksgiving table. And little Tommy puts his finger in the mashed potatoes. And then that finger that's filled with mashed potatoes, he just sticks it into little Teresa's ear. And dad says to Tommy, why did you do that? What was the purpose? Why is that necessary? Tommy got nothing to say. It's not needful, it's not necessary, it's not purposeful. And then as a good dad, because God's word says that a loving father lovingly uses the rod to protect and preserve his son and lead his son to joy, to joy dad sends little Tommy to his room to get a consequence. And when little Tommy receives that consequence, Tommy looked back up at daddy and says, why was that necessary for me to receive that consequence? And dad can say, it was needful, it was necessary. And he can explain to him why. If the first truth is that trouble doesn't last forever, the second truth is that if you're in Christ, God promises that your trouble does have a reason and a purpose. Third truth is from that little word grieved. You have been grieved. And the truth here is simply that trouble does not feel good. Trouble does not feel good. Let us not become hyper-spiritual to where we think, because this text says we rejoice even though we have trouble. Let us not become hyper-spiritual to where we think if we admit that our troubles grieve us, we're not being a good Christian. That's not what this text says. That's not what this text says. This text says that troubles are grievous. They're hurtful. They're harmful. And they sting. And to grieve over them is okay. In fact, shouldn't this be said? Let's not hyper-spiritualize like the submissiveness of Christianity to say that you should never escape trouble. There are some troubles that you shouldn't simply endure, but you should seek to escape through the God-ordained means of protection and justice. But what this is saying is that while you're in them, troubles are grievous. They hurt. So trouble third does not feel good. Fourth phrase comes from that little, the, the little word various from various trials. And the fourth truth is simply this, trouble does come in different ways. Trouble comes in different ways. It comes to different people in different ways. There's your trouble, there's her trouble, there's my trouble. This is the word, uh, it's sometimes translated many colored in the Greek. 
It's often used, uh, I'm not a big sculpture or art guy, but when, when we were in Rome, one of the most amazing things that I saw, and you can Google it, but it's not the same on a screen, was the way that they sculpted a veil over a woman's face on a, on a, on a granite statue. The, the, way, the way they got that marble not a grand, the, the way they got that marble to be, a, to be a veil over her face was stunning. And this word is used of the various veins and various depths in marble that the artist uses. But the point here is simply the trouble does come in various ways. It comes in different ways. And the fifth and last point is actually from one of the first phrases in the text because it says in verse six, in this you rejoice. So the fifth and final point that helps us untangle our responses to trouble is this. Trouble does not stop the Christian's joy. Trouble does not stop the Christian's joy. Verse six says, in this you rejoice though now for a little while you're troubled. And if you put the this and you point upwards, it's in this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, you believe that you died with Christ and he paid the penalty for your sin and now you walk in newness of life with him. And if you're a Christian, you have new life and new joy in Christ. In this, you rejoice. Trouble does not stop the Christian's joy. In this, you rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you're grieved by various trials. So talk about joy. There are various good definitions of joy. One way to look at this sermon actually is I'm trying to spend all the little moments that I have up here talking about Christian joy in the middle of trials. But notice how it says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So there's joy. So if you would picture it like this, here's a sign that says, joy in trials. And this sign is hanging from the ceiling. We have signs like this, I think, like there's one right over the welcome desk. There, there's a sign, and the sign says, joy in trials. But there are two holes on the top of the sign, and then there's a chain or a rope that connects that sign to the ceiling. And the way I want to picture it is the sign says, joy in trials. But the holes and the two ropes or the two chains actually are faith. Because joy in trials is mentioned in verse 6, and faith is mentioned in verse 5, and faith is mentioned in verse 7. See it. It says in verse 6, you rejoice in your trials. But it says in verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then verse six says, you rejoice in your trials. And then it says in verse seven, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you see, the two ropes on which hangs the sign that says we rejoice in our trials are the ropes of faith. Verse five, it's faith that God guards us with, that God gives us as he guards us and preserves us. And then in verse seven, it's faith that is itself proven by the exigencies and the extreme difficulties of the trial. Verse seven says that your faith actually is, is benefited from the trial. What is joy? There's a handful of words for joy in the New Testament 
and there's a common word for joy that is found throughout, uh, so, so to speak, secular Greek authors. But you know, in the New Testament, there's a little handful of words that don't show up a lot outside of the New Testament, and, and the, the most famous one is agape. And they think that the, that, the, that the authors of Scripture kind of brought that word into being. And there's a special word for joy that Peter uses that is uncommon outside of the Bible, but is common inside of the Bible. And that's the word that he uses here. Peter uses it again, not the usual word for joy, but this sort of, this sort of new word for joy. And he uses it again, if you look at it, in 4.13, in 4.13 of 1 Peter. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. There is a rejoicing in sharing in sufferings so that you can rejoice at the glory on the other side. This is a, this is a, this is a special word for joy. Actually, Mary uses it in the Magnificat. It's a joy that's peculiar to salvation. It's a joy that is peculiarly Christian. So, though there are many definitions of joy, there are probably many correct definitions of joy. One way we can get at it this morning is to say that if joy is in the presence of trials, and if joy is in the presence of suffering, then we would have to say that joy is not an emotional response to a good situation. It's not what it is. Joy is not a merely emotional response to a good situation. Joy is not an easy feeling because everything is coming up aces. Here we can say that joy is a confidence. Joy is a confidence that God is present and powerful and in control of the outcome, even if the process is difficult. Joy is not a, a merely emotional reaction to things going well, but joy is a deep down confidence that God is and that God is present and that God is powerful and that God is in control of the ultimate outcome, even if the immediate is suffering and difficulty and pain. Joy is in some ways an emotion, but joy is an emotion springing up not from a response to immediate circumstances. Joy is an emotion springing up from a deep down confidence that God is and God is powerful and God is present and Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That's why he says in this verse six, pointing upward to the living hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so I hope you see immediately the paradox. You are suffering grievously and you are rejoicing gravely, greatly. How do you suffer grievously and rejoice greatly at the same time? How do sadness and gladness exist side by side? And if you wonder how sadness and gladness exist side by side, then I wonder uh, how much life have you really lived as a Christian? I'm just wondering that. I'm not accusing you, but I'm just wondering. If you have no clue how gladness and sadness can exist side by side, it makes me wonder how much of life you really have lived as a Christian. Because those women and those men, and they don't have to be old. I know women in their, in their 
teenage years who have lived life as a Christian and they know what it is to have joy and sorrow side by side. The grief is real. The sorrow is real. The pain is, is deep and it stings. And yet the presence of Jesus Christ is not equally real, but more real than the pain and the difficulty. And we know that the grief and the pain is on the clock. It's winding down. It's for a little while. And we know that the inheritance that we have in Christ is imperishable, undefiled, uncorruptible, and it is kept in heaven not by our performance, but by God's majestic power. Hope fills the soul while tears fill the eyes. If you wonder how can grief and joy exist at the same time, it makes me wonder how many of our memorial services or our funeral services in this very room have you attended? Dozens and dozens and dozens of times through the years. I've had my arm on the widow or the widower, and we both had tears in our eyes, and we both had joy in our hearts. At the same time, 2 Corinthians 6.10, 2 Corinthians 6.10, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. 1 Thessalonians 1.6, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 1.6. Many other verses like it. What is it in Acts 16 when it says that they beat the apostles with many blows and they put them in the worst part of the prison and they were rejoicing and singing. So the paradox of joy and sorrow, of purpose and faith and pain and difficulty is matched in the Christian gospel. Talk about the paradox of joy. Let's also talk about what this text talks about, which is the the how trials prove the provenness or the progress that trials bring, the provenness or the progress that trials bring. You see, it says in verse six, you're grieved by various trials, but see the purpose, verse seven, so that, it says if necessary, and then it says verse seven, so that, both meaning there's a purpose to them, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials are for testing. Trials are for testing. It says in verse seven, so that the tested genuineness of your faith. This is what James says in James chapter one, verse three. In James chapter one, verse three, it says, God doesn't tempt anyone to evil. God doesn't tempt anyone to sin. God doesn't tempt anyone to evil. But those who are his children, God tests them to prove their faith to show the reality of their faith, to point out the weak spots in their faith and to help them to grow. Trials and troubles prove and test your temperament and your faith. Trials are trials of your character, of your patience, of your faith. So let me illustrate it by something I did yesterday, which is buying uh, something online. 
And I can't say what it was because it was a Christmas present for a certain wife who's actually, my wife is actually in the room right now, so I won't say what it was. But there's a, the problem with buying something online is what? It looks great. And the little description of it, which is written by the manufacturer, is like, this is the best, it wasn't gloves, but let's say it's gloves. These are the best gloves, the best mittens that have ever been made. And the picture looks perfect and the description looks perfect. But when you're buying something online, you just wonder, well, how good are these gloves really? How soft is this scarf really? How strong does this coffee taste really? And you don't know by reading what the manufacturer says because the manufacturer's only goal is to lie as much as he can to get as much of your money as he can. So you look for the actual customer reviews. Now, maybe these are also sketchy. I don't know, but I still like, but part of me thinks that at least maybe this is some, some great aunt from Omaha who has no reason to lie about this. So I'll click on why did she give it three stars? Or why did she give it four stars? See, when you click on the customer reviews, it's not a sales pitch, hopefully, if the algorithm's working properly, and it's actually an honest assessment from someone who put on the gloves, from someone who wrapped the scarf around it, from someone who brewed the coffee beans to see how they tasted. So it is with your faith. You don't know until you have to go through it. You don't know until you try the gloves on. You don't know until the heat is turned up. I don't mean to tell you I don't trust you because I do trust you, but what I, if you're following the analogy, you are the manufacturer. <laughs> if I ask you, how are you doing? <laughs> Your motivation is, well, I'm doing great. <laughs> I, I, God's lucky to have me on his team. I'm like, here. Like, well, that's all fine and good, but let's see, let's see what's really there. If you're not interested in reading the real reviews, then I just, I, I think you're, you're hoodwinking yourself. So you have to go through the test. Trials are for the testing of our faith. And verses six and seven say, trials in themselves are not joyful. They're not happy. They're not easy. In fact, they're grievous. But the result of the trial is that impurities are burned away. And sister, that is a glorious thing. Brother, that is something to rejoice about. If the trials test our faith and burn away the impurities. If the faith that emerges is more pure, more strong, more enduring, then we can have joy in that. Verse seven says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. So you know about gold being tested by fire. Uh, pretend that you're totally ignorant about gold and where it comes from. I could say that for some of you to pretend you're ignorant is harder than others of you, but I'm not gonna get into that whole thing. So just, let's just say that, <laughs> let's just say that, pretend that you don't know anything about gold. And so here you are watching a prospector, you know, flannel shirt, cap, suspenders, just sh shoveling away, picking away at the stuff. And then finally, he, the, the prospector lifts up these, these two chunks of rock 
and there's some sparkles in them and there's a lot of gray rock and brown dirt in them. And the prospector says, you don't know anything about gold, but the prospector says to you a true statement. This here, this here is the most valuable thing in the world. And then that prospector lights the strongest, hottest fire that he can possibly light. And he puts a smelting pot over it and he throws what he just told you was the most valuable thing in the world on the hottest part of that fire. And in your ignorance, you're like, you're so stupid. If that's so valuable, why you want to burn it? But it's your ignorance that's reacting to the fire burning the gold. You see where I'm going with this? You're taking it back. What in the world? If you just told me that's the most valuable thing, why would you burn it? Why would you subject it to the hottest fire you can build? So to switch back to the analogy, honestly, without, without insulting you, saying, looking in the mirror, I'm right where you are. It, it is your own ignorance about the whole process that God has revealed in Scripture that makes you call the trials in your life stupid. That's the point. It's your ignorance, whether it's a culpable ignorance because you've been taught it, but you just suppress it. It's your ignorance of all that God has revealed about the purposes of trials that would make you say, that's stupid for you to do that. No, see, the, there are impurities and there are needed tests. And that's why God brings us through these trials so that our faith in Jesus will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation. The analogy of gold is apt on several levels because gold is valuable, yet like all earthly treasures, a day is coming when the value of your bank account won't matter at all. Peter speaks about this day in his second epistle. In 2 Peter 3, verse 10, listen to this. It says, the day, Peter says, the day of the Lord, 2 Peter 3, 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and when the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? I'm utterly certain that Peter, in personal conversation, would have told certain members of the church, listen, you care too much about earthly gold and you don't care enough about your faith and it's killing you. All of your earthly gold won't be worth anything in the end, but your faith will be, your faith will lead to sight. You'll be in Jesus. We're saved by grace through faith. If you're here visiting this morning and you're with us and you're not a Christian, what that simply means is you haven't yet believed by faith that as a sinner, you need a savior and Jesus Christ is that savior when he took your place on that cross and when he was in that tomb for you and now he's risen for you. If you're here and you're a Christian, you're not a Christian because you do a perfect job of getting through trials all the time. You are a Christian simply and solely by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And the analogy is apt because all of our gold won't be worth anything on that final day. And it's also, I think if I could show you maybe my favorite word in this text, I love the word rejoice. I love the phrase a little while. 
But perhaps my favorite word is the word that's translated the tested genuineness. The tested genuineness. There's a Greek word that in English it starts with D-O-K. Dokimazo or dokimazo. This is the process of testing a genuine article and revealing that it is sterling, that it is trustworthy, that it is the real deal. The reason that's my favorite word in this text, like a lot of things, what are your, your favorite things or your favorite things because of people you love and memories you have? And the reason this is my favorite word in the text is because of a professor that I had at the master's seminary who I loved. He he taught me this word and he used this word, dakimazo, uh, all the time. And he used it only when he was speaking about someone that he respected. A woman in the church who is proven that she's a woman who fears the Lord. A young man in the church who was battle-tested and resisted temptation and came through it honoring the Savior. And my friend would say, that, that man, that woman is a dakimazo man or woman. And he made me want to be that. What a great word. If that's what's going on, that we're being tested so that the genuineness of our faith may be revealed, then could we take a second and ask the question, what is it that's being burned off of our faith? If that's the whole point that the fire is burning off the impurities, what are the impurities that are burned off of our faith? This text is not explicit about what they are. And I'm sure that the impurities inside of you are to some degree different than the impurities inside of me. Because though we are both equally depraved, my depravity comes out according to my whole, you know, who I am and yours comes out according to your whole, who you are. And we both need them burned out. So I can't say for sure what they are in you. I'm not even sure that I can say for sure what they are in me because my heart tricks me, doesn't it? But I can certainly lay out some general ones that we would all agree are probably there. What are, what are the impurities that need to be burned away? How about this? Um, our addiction to trying to play both sides. Man, I want God but I really don't want the world to persecute me. Our tricky way that we play both sides needs to be burned out. Man, I want God's approval, but I sure don't want the world to mock me and tell me that I'm a loser. One of the impurities that needs to be burned away is uh, kind of our, our insane ability to actually say to God, God, I'll give you this and this and this and this and this, but oh God, keep your hands off that. That needs to be burned away. The fact that we fear man more than we fear God. Moses, the meekest man in the world, was such because he feared the Lord and that's why Pharaoh wasn't nothing to him. And when we fear man more than we fear God, our, our willingness to say to Jesus, I will follow you. And Jesus, I'll even follow you through the narrow gate as long as I can bring this and this with me through the narrow gate. 
Beloved, a, a verse that I've been meditating on this week that we don't meditate on enough. Words of Jesus, John 12, verse 25. Words of Jesus, John 12, verse 25. He who loves his life loses it. But he who hates his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. One of the things that needs to be burned away is our, uh, our prayerlessness. If the most important thing in your life is your relationship with God, I would say two of the most important things, if not the two most important things about your relationship with God, are hearing from God by reading his word and opening up your life and your heart to God in prayer. And so I would say anything that causes you to not read the word and not pray is toxic and dangerous and an impurity that needs to be burned away. And it is the case that easy times make it easy to neglect prayer. Prosperity deflates prayer. We, we say thanks, but we don't really need prayer. Oh, but hardship and trouble, they fuel prayer, don't they? Don't they? They do in my life. I wish that I always had the prayer life that I have when I'm on my face because everything's falling apart. John Newton, trials give new life to prayer. Trials lay us at his feet. Trials lay us low and keep us there. These are just a few of the things that are burned away by trials. And the last thing I'd show you is the end of verse seven. It says, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the one thing I wanna show you about that text is that your immediate instinct to say that glory, your immediate instinct is to say praise, glory, and honor are always reflected up to God. The reason this is, the reason this is almost wacky, though nothing in the Bible is wacky, is that that instinct, which is a good instinct, that praise and glory and honor should always be directed up to God, it's, I don't think it's the proper interpretation of this text. Based on what he says in verse five, verse six, verse seven, and verse eight, I believe what Peter is talking about is the praise and honor that God in his majesty will specifically reflect off of you because of your dokimazo, because of the, the way that you honored him through the trial. I think what he's getting at is what it says in Matthew 25. The master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. When God says, well done. What he says in Matthew 25, verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you. When he sees the way that they walked through that tribulation and he says, and he, and he says I wanna honor you with this. It's what Paul was getting at in 1 Corinthians 4 when he said, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful when the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart and then each one's praise will be coming from God. You see, praise, where we always think it goes up to God, it almost always does, but it, there's, there's a moment in the end when God, so to speak, honors us and he's stacking up these terms about our responses to trial 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, when we get the crown, you know what we do with the crown? We give it back to Jesus because all of my faith was in Jesus to begin with. So it all goes back to him. But he's pointing out that you're the, the tested genuineness of your faith in Jesus when the trials and Satan and your own sinful flesh and this God dishonoring world did all that it could to get you to deny Jesus, you clung to Christ. And when Christ returns, he will say, so to speak, I'm proud of you. I want to honor you for the way that you honored me. What a thing to think of. Will Jesus be all in all in the end? Of course he will. But what Jesus does in us will be a part of what we enjoy forever. So coming to church, I love to sing. I love the preaching of the word, whether it's me or somebody else. And one of the things I love about church, it happens much more in ABF than it does in corporate worship, is when, you know, when you're sharing with me about a trial that you're going through, and I can see, I can see that God is at work in you. And that strengthens me. And this is actually saying that in the end, we're still gonna be able to do that with each other. Because the, the way you came through Dakimadzo will be a, a way that I honor God by seeing the work that God did in you. How wonderful that we have this assurance that though our trials are grievous, they only last a little while. And they are for this purpose of praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so church, let's bow in prayer. I just wanna take a minute to pray for you and then I wanna give you a minute to pray. First, let me pray for you. Living God, I pray for each woman and man who is here. And I pray, Lord, for, I pray about the way that we feel. I pray for those who are grieved by various trials. Lord God, those feelings are real. You acknowledge them. Even here in this text, you say that, it, that pain doesn't feel good, it feels grievous. Thank you for sympathizing with us. I pray for those who are grieved by various trials. Would you comfort them in their affliction? Would you let even others in this room not make it worse by being miserable comforters, but just being genuine, sincere in the way that we weep with those who weep? Heavenly Father, would you comfort your precious lambs who are grieved? And I pray, Lord, for the necessary nature of our trials, for the testing of our faith. I pray, Lord, that every woman and man here would acknowledge that they are not a perfect product yet and that there are hidden or even not so hidden impurities and imperfections. And help us to know that we need the refining fire of your love. 
And then church, I just give you a moment to pray. You can pray for your own heart if you're in the middle of a trial and you know you need help. Or perhaps God put someone else on your heart who you know is in a trial. And I give you a moment to pray for them as an expression of Christian love. Lord Jesus, strengthen our faith, our hope, and our love. Let us see, even now by faith, the glory and the honor and the praise that belong to those who lose their life and deny themselves to follow Jesus, who is life indeed. Amen. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.